Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Mark Dever. Uh, Just kidding. Not accurate. <laughs> I'm Matthew Lyon. And today our topic is uh, part two in our series on Baptist distinctives, autonomy of the local church and congregationalism. This might be the hardest one. Or maybe the most pushback from people. I'm trying to think of people I've talked to. It's the least clear. Biblical authority is easy. The Bible is true and you should follow it. Congregationalism or church autonomy. Or autonomy of local church, actually, to fit the Baptist acronym. Is one of the more difficult ones. I, it's also the one that's very easy to tell whether or not you're meeting it practically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, are people actually making decisions? So the big thing is, the big principle is, who makes decisions in the church? Uh, who holds the power in the church? So, or over the church, you might go the same. So when we talk about Baptist distinctives, the so congregationalism is not the same as Baptist. There's actually a congregational a denomination. So Jonathan Edwards was a congregationalist. I think they all turned out to be heretics. I think they all went and became a Unitarian. I'm pretty sure all the congregational churches in New England turned Unitarian. So that was a weird anomaly. But they baptize babies. Baptists don't. So this is not the only distinction, but this is one of the main distinctions. Okay, so when we talk about church government, I would say most people don't think about it very much. Yeah. It's It's and may not realize how old the distinctions are. I think people probably also don't necessarily think about it as a theological position, but more of just a practical, yeah, what makes sense. What's the best form of business to be the most productive, <laughs> which is a very American way of thinking of it. But there are three basic forms of government. Actually, there's five. I was doing some research today. There's the three we're going to talk about. Then there's Erastian. I, I know that one. Yeah, I have many Erastian friends. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what the word means, actually, to be honest. I didn't look it up. It refers to like the state church format of church government, but not Anglican. Interesting. So I didn't look into it because it never really comes up. Then there's the sort of anarchist type, like Quakers, and like they don't have church governments. But the main three are Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and Congregational. And none of these three refer to the denominations that bear the same name, which is very important. Episcopalian government, Presbyterian government, and congregational government exist in multiple denominations, some of which are called Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and so forth. So when we look at the three of them, and then there's hybrids, and that happens a lot. But I think the hybrids exist a lot of times because people aren't careful about it, and they're not really paying attention. And things are going smoothly, and so they don't really focus on it. It's not broke, don't fix it. Right, yeah. Okay, so uh, the importance of church government. I'm looking at my notes, see if these are important. I think everyone knows who makes the decisions is important. So three types of church government. So Episcopalian would be Roman Catholic, Church of England, United Methodist Church, some Pentecostal church, African Methodist Episcopal. And this is comes from the Greek word episkopos, which everyone knows, right? That's, oh, yeah. a, that's a common word. It actually is common because it's Episcopalian. It means bishop. So 1 Timothy 3, any, anyone that desires the office of, a, office of a bishop, the reason it's translated bishop is because Anglicans 
Episcopalians translated it, and they had a bishop. Uh, other translations will say overseer. So the Greek word episkopos, translated bishop or overseer, was adopted by Episcopalians or Episcopalian government. And this means that the bishop has the authority. So the bishop makes the decisions. He rules over the congregation. He rules over groups of priests. The worst case scenario is the pope. The pope is the ultimate bishop who rules over the entire Roman Catholic Church. But then you'll go to like an Anglican church and you'll have a bishop of like a region. Um, and it's not quite so unbiblical or, well, maybe we have some Episcopalian Anglican listeners. I don't think so, but you can be right on the gospel and wrong on this. So the bishop has the power to ordain bishops, priests, deacons, kick people out of church, introduce people in the church, make big decisions, and they'll meet together in like synods and groups. And all the power resides in this bishop figure or the Episcopos. So Episcopalians. Episcopalians were Church of England in America who decided that after the Revolutionary War being called Church of England, it's not very popular. Right. And so they left the Church of England and became Episcopalian. But Methodists are Episcopal. And that just means if you go to a Methodist church, there's going to be a bishop over that church and other churches in that area. And he has the authority. I think most of our listeners probably aren't very familiar with that or have much interaction with that church government. Uh, they know about the Pope. That's the worst case example. Some actually divide that into a different set of authority, sort of papal authority. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is such a radically specific thing that maybe you could do that. So when you drive by St. Mark's Episcopal Church, there's going to be a priest in that church, and there's going to be a bishop over him. If you drive by Mount Zion AME, there's going to be a priest or pastor and then a bishop over them. And that bishop makes the decisions. Um, There is nothing in the Bible about that. And even the Episcopalians, Episcopal people know that. When they make an argument for it, they're like, well, this isn't in the Bible. They basically say the Bible doesn't tell you how to run a church. And so you do what's best. And so they'll look at church history and say, well, this is what works best. So it's almost, well, I mean, they basically say, we're, this is, there's no biblical model, so we're just doing what we think works the most pragmatically. And that has appeared quite frequently in Baptist life on a low level with what's called the monoepiscopacy. And the monoepiscopacy was very popular in like second century, first century, third century. And it reemerged in America with the likes of pastors who have all the authority in the church. So like sort of the domineering dictator. Uh, or it, they don't have to be harsh. They just make all the decisions. So I think many of our listeners are familiar with pastors who make all the decisions. Yeah. Independent Baptist Church. I think Jack Hiles is an example. Lee Robertson is an example. So many independent Baptist churches, the pastor has practical control over every aspect of the church. And that's fairly common in America, 20th century, uh, Southern Baptist, independent Baptist churches. Sometimes they'll branch out. And I know independent Baptist churches that will have chapels that are independent congregations that are run by the pastor of the head church. That's a form of episcopacy. And so more like a mono-episcopacy in some cases. But it means the pastor has all the control. What, so the spiritual impact is that the congregation can become passive. And just trust the bishop or the pastor to make all the decisions. And they just sort of sit back. 
And on the opposite side of that, the pastor can burn out. Yeah, because if he's not a megalomaniac or just a really severe, extra confident person, yeah, it's just the, the weight of decision making is just unhealthy. Uh, so that's Episcopalian government. The second one is Presbyterian. And again, this is not referring just to the Presbyterian church. Presbyterians, all the Presbyterian denominations, for the most part, I think maybe there's like a free evangelical Presbyterian that's congregational. I can't remember. But OPC, PCUSA, PCA, the uh, Apostolic Church. Then you'll have like uh, the the chapels, the Bible chapels. So John MacArthur is sort of kind of like this. Uh, if you go to a Calvary Chapel, there's Calvary chapels all around America. They're going to be Presbyterian. So Presbyterian comes from the Greek word, Mark. What is it? Uh, presbyteros. Uh, which means literally elder. So the Presbyterian form of government has a group of elders elected by the congregation that then rules over the congregation. And so Episcopalian, you had a bishop. Presbyterian, you have a group of elders. And so the group of elders rule over the church. They make all the decisions, and then they have another group over them, uh, a, a session, a presbytery, synod, general assembly, so on and so forth. And they're just smaller and smaller groups. Uh, it's basically taken from uh, Moses, the Old Testament, when he, one of the strongest arguments is when Moses had to make decisions, and his uh, father in law, Jethro, said, You shouldn't do this, you should appoint people to help you elders of you know and so israel was a presbyterian form of government they had elders over 50s and 10s and and so forth so presbyterian so therefore that's the that's a good model then they go to acts chapter 15 the jerusalem council and they argue that this looks a little this i'm trying to be cynical um sorry tim keller um don't don't tweet at me for for criticizing you here yeah, so from Acts 15, they infer that that was a, like an assembly of elders. It's a weak argument, in my opinion. So the strongest Presbyterian argument is really from the Old Testament. And then inferring from Acts 15. And it's also an effective way to rule. And I think it's probably what most well-meaning independent Baptists are leaning towards without realizing it is a group of competent, qualified leaders who just sort of get together and make decisions for the church. And as long as it works out well, they kind of don't pay attention to it. But that's Presbyterianism. And then our topic, congregationalism. Congregation, the local church, is ruled ultimately that the highest human authority is not the bishop, it's not the elders, it's the congregation itself. With sort of a democratic process. It's not a democracy, but it's a democratic process where each one votes. So this is where congregation, congregationalism and uh, autonomy of local church, who rules the church? That local congregation, not another congregation. And this is constantly coming up as a problem in every denomination, every form is other churches trying to tell another church how to run their church. It can be formal. It can be informal. But autonomy of local church says the people that make the final decision are the people in the church, the congregation itself. Uh, they are led by a bishop slash elder slash pastor, but they're ruled. The authority, the final authority, 
is the group of people called the congregation. So the question that we have to ask, well, two questions. What do Baptists believe and what does the Bible say? And as Baptists, we think it's the same thing, <laughs> right? It's like, if the Bible says it, then we do it. And if Baptists also say it, then that means they're biblical. So when we talk about authority, the highest authority over the church is what? Uh, Christ. Trick question, yeah. <laughs> you didn't throw in human, so. Yeah. Wait, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the key word, human. The highest authority is Christ himself. Yeah. So the Lordship of Christ, Colossians 1.18, he's the head of the church, the head of the body. Matthew 28, 18-20, he's head of the individual, teach them to obey all the words of Christ. Uh, so how does Christ rule the church? So a bishop, uh, Episcopalian church would say he rules through the bishop. Presbyterian church says he rules through the elders. Congregational church does not say that. And how do we get that? So practically speaking, all churches should say this. He rules through the word, his word, and the spirit. So the word tells us what he says. The spirit tells us how to interpret it. So then the next question is, who has the word and who has the spirit? Which gives us the the necessary qualifications for the ability to rule. What gives the ability for an average person to make decisions like this? The word and the spirit. The combination of those two things that every believer has. But then the Bible speaks specifically about it. Uh, and so I've had to kind of think about this. What powers does the congregation have? Have you ever thought about that? Like congregational, but what does the Bible say? The con- And I actually was challenged by a bishop of North Carolina, Josh Cox. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Josh Cox uh, down there in the South. He's from Baltimore. He used to be at up in church up north of Baltimore. Anyway, he challenged me on this and said, what exactly is the church authorized to do? And so I had to kind of go look in the scripture and find out. So I see three things, four things, three clear things, and maybe a fourth by implication. So the first clear thing that the Bible says congregation is authorized to do is discipline. Clearest example in scripture is Matthew chapter 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, tell him, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he'll not hear you, take with you one or two more witnesses or one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So that here's where it comes to, okay, so that's not working. So then you take it to the final authority. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, the key thing there is no mention of elders. No mention of a bishop, no mention of pastor, no mention of a committee. Simply says, go straight from you and two of your friends to the whole church. Uh, but if you refuse even to hear the church, let him uh, let him to be to you like a heathen or the Greek where there's ethnikos, which can be translated Gentiles. It basically means outside the covenant community, not like the Jews were the covenant community. So that's why it's translated heathen and a tax collector. In other words, unrepentant outside the church, outside the community. And that's it. Like the church, the whole church, declares this person outside of the church. They excommunicate them. They church discipline them. Uh, Church them, as some people say. So who has authority in that passage to discipline? Not the elders, not the bishop, not the deacons, not the pastor, the whole church together. So that means Baptist churches have, have said that, that the church disciplines 
its members as a group. Now, many, many Baptists do not practice that. And I would say most Baptists I know and have been a part of do not do that, unfortunately. Partly because it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to just let someone else do it. But the Bible says that the whole church has the power. The ult- I mean, that's the highest power. To kick someone out of the church, there's no more power than that. Like, that's the ultimate power of removing somebody. And that's given to the whole church. Because the whole church has the word and the spirit. Uh, then 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual morality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. So blatant, open sin. And he says, you're, and you are puffed up. Notice you being the Corinthian church, not the elders. He never talks to the elders or deacons here. Uh, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged. And then here's the de- declaration, teaching to the church. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay, so right there, like that's a pronouncement. When you are gathered together, so the whole church is gathered together, along with my spirit, that's the apostolic spirit authority, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're assembled together as a church, you have the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty serious. Mm -hmm. Who has the power? The whole church assembled. Uh, you are, the, the church, is to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. So there, that's, who has the power? The church. The very power of Jesus Christ, assuming they're following the apostolic witness and the authority. And what are the elders and deacons and bishops supposed to be doing at this time? Uh, not making pronouncements. Maybe leading, maybe advising, but ultimately the congregation, the assembly. And then, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this may be the same case later. It's, it's not sure. He says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. So notice that the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Well, the majority means you know who is there. can't have a majority unless you know the whole number. Well, the majority of who? The church. So that's where we get sort of this democratic process of voting. That's the closest thing you have to a vote is that the majority of the church. And again, no mention of elders, deacons, committees. The whole church is, is sort of taking a vote uh, to exercise church discipline. So discipline, which is the ability to receive and, and dismiss members. So who should be a member of the church? The congregation decides. So some of the people listening may have a church where they present present members to the church without a vote. That's not congregational and it's not biblical because it's vesting the power of membership into a select group and not to the whole group. And that's taking power to themselves and they don't mean to do it. And most of the congregation is okay with it. Cause like, well, we trust the pastor and we trust, I mean, what do we do here? We have a, members meet we have a new members class and the elders interview and then the elder presents it to the church but then the church votes the church has the power to receive and dismiss members they have the power of the membership and and they're made aware of who's going through the process they have an opportunity right to. yeah so there's practical ways to do that but if you just present someone to the church having already decided they're a member the the church is not doesn't have the power of jesus to declare membership to affirm salvation And that's not congregational, it's not Baptistic, and I don't think it's scriptural either.
So the power of discipline or the power of membership, receiving and dismissing. Then the second thing is even broader, responsibility for pure doctrine, practice, and unity. Jude chapter 1. I think when you write out Jude, you should write chapter 1 and verse 3 and not just Jude 3 because then it looks like Jude chapter 3. Anyway, pet peeve. (laughs) Uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 3. There's only one chapter for those who don't know. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, uh, uh, the letter is addressed to those who are called, sanctified, preserved by Christ, so all Christians. Uh, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith, which is Christianity, doctrine, was delivered to all the saints, and all the saints are to defend it. You can't just pass it off to the... That's the pastor's job to make sure. So it's all the saints are to contend for it, because it was given to all the saints. So who's in charge of the doctrine in the church? All the saints there, the congregation. Uh, Then Galatians chapter 1. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, addressed to the churches of Galatia. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So who's he talking to? The whole church of Galatia. He's saying you are in charge of the gospel. If someone else starts preaching a different gospel, you need to kick them out. Even Paul himself. So in one sense, they are to stay true to the apostolic doctrine, even over the apostle himself, because he can't contradict Jesus' teaching. So who's in charge of doctrine? The churches, the church of Galatia, the church of Maryland, the church of wherever. So that means statement of faith should be put together and voted on by the people. Accepted by, affirmed by the people, not the pastor putting it for them. Uh, the covenant, the teaching from the pulpit. I mean, how many times have we heard someone say, well, the pastor, I don't really agree with what he said, but I'm not the pastor. Like, no. Mm-hmm. Paul would say, I marvel that you are turning away so soon to listen to your pastor who's preaching a false gospel <laughs> or bad doctrine. It's the church's job to keep track of the doctrine, not the pastors. Well, not just the pastors. So... Everything that has to do with doctrine in the church is ultimately the congregation's responsibility. Teaching, preaching, statement of faith, master's club, awanas, whatever it is, the whole church is responsible for that. And this is really, I think it's one of the most important details that churches miss, even our church. It's hard for people to say, well, it's not just the pastor's responsibility, it's my responsibility, because everyone just defers to the pastor. Well, he knows more than I do. But that leads to weak churches where the passive members who are not actively, you know, the Bereans, they went home and they searched the scriptures mm-hmm. and just say, well, Paul said it. He's an apostle. So that's the goal here is that the Bible is teaching clearly that the whole church has a responsibility for doctrine. But then it gets even more specific in 1 Corinthians 11 when it talks about the Lord's Supper. So again, 1 Corinthians written to the whole church at Corinth, no mention of elders. He says, um, verse 17, 11, 17, now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together. That's They come together as a meeting. Not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, so there it is, the assembly, the whole congregation, I hear that there are divisions among you, and that in part I believe it. And then he goes on, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one has taken his own supper ahead of the others. And he just goes on to sort of criticize them. 
So it's not a doctrinal issue. It's not a leadership issue. It's a practice issue. It's what they're actually doing and it's an ordinance issue. So who's responsible for the Lord's Supper here? He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, church, congregation. I delivered how to take the Lord's Supper to you. Then he goes on, take ye, this is my body. In the same manner, take this cup. So So Paul is telling the church, you are responsible for the Lord's Supper, not the pastor. They oversee it. But if the Lord's Supper is not being handled correctly, the congregation's at fault. In the whole rest of the chapter, therefore, he who whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Can't pass it off on the pastor. Uh, and it's a unity issue. So who's responsible to, who's responsible for the unity of the church? The church is. The congregation is. As a pastor, that's a ton of work for a pastor to get the church to unify and to teach them. It's a lot easier to tell the church what to do than to get the church to actually tell themselves what to do. And I think a lot of pastors, especially the church plants and uh, traditional churches, so on both ends. So a church plant, it starts with just the like the pastor and like three of his friends or his team, and then you add people to it. And it's easier for the pastor to continue just to be the main driving force in that, even years later, especially if he's talented. And so I have a lot of friends who are church planters. This is a very big danger is that the people coming to your church, they already look to you to set the standard. And you've been setting the standard since day one. But the Bible teaches that when the Lord's Supper is taken, the members are responsible, not the pastor, ultimately. Uh, and then traditional churches, it's sort of the, you know the pastor's in charge, and we just sit back. It's always been this way, and it's just the way it is. And so, as as church members and leaders, we have to push people to take responsibility for what the Bible gives them responsibility for. Then uh, choosing, so that, so congregations should handle discipline, should handle doctrine, practice, unity, the ordinances, and then they should handle choosing elders and deacons. This one a little bit trickier. So Acts chapter 6, the apostles needed deacons. And they say to the congregation, choose from among you seven men. And they did. The congregation chose the deacons. That's pretty clear. Bigger question is, who chooses elders? Okay, so in the Bible, who chooses the elders? The apostle Paul did. Uh, and then Acts chapter 11 or 14, they appointed elders, Barn, Paul and Barnabas. So in the New Testament, it's apostles appointing. Or delegating. So now that we our time, who picks the elders? Well, Baptists have believed that the congregation picks. And part of the reason for this is there's no more apostles. Baptists don't believe in apostles anymore. They died with them. Okay, so if the apostles can't appoint them, who's, who is the successor of the apostles? And I think the Baptist answer is the Bible is. Right, The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Acts chapter 2, they continue daily in the apostles' doctrine. So that's what we do. So the authority we have comes from the apostles, namely the scriptures. So in a sense, we have to let the scriptures appoint people. Well, how do we do that? You turn to First Corinthians chapter, uh, First Timothy chapter 3, and it says, overseers, bishops, should be, deacons should be. And so we say, well, there's the apostles' word. And nobody, you have apostles who are over everybody, but then that's it. There's just people after that. It's just members of the church. There's no second level. 
So every member, every Christian is under the authority of the word or the apostles, as it were, just like Timothy was. So who picks the elders? Well, if the apostles can't, then we follow the apostles' standard. And who interprets the scripture? Well, who's in charge of doctrine? Who's in charge of practice? Who's in charge of unity? Who's in charge of the ordinances? The congregation is. So the congregation elects the elders following the apostles' doctrine. If you let somebody else elect the elders, you've made them the authority. So I believe, and then in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter uh, 13, that's where Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas are separated out for their ministry. And it's, they're sent by the church. So who sends out ministry, uh, missionaries? Well, Barnabas was sent by the church to Antioch. Then in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said to the church, separate me out, Paul and Barnabas, to leave your church. And then they did. They separated them out. So if you can, if that's the example of missionaries, well, missionary is a church planter. It's a, elder at large. So there's a perfect, there's a clear example, two clear examples of the church setting up leaders, the whole church. And so Baptists have always believed that the congregation picks its own leaders and they don't leave it to some other group or individual. There's actually an interesting book that just came out called Orthodox Radicals about early Baptists in the 1600s by Matthew Bingham. It costs like 80 bucks. It's one of those academic press it's not the author's fault. So I haven't read it yet, but I read a good review of it. And he makes the case that congregationalism came first, which is true. Congregationalism came first in England. And congregational churches then were led to adopt believers' baptism because of their congregationalism. And I think it's a very compelling argument. If you believe in congregationalism, that means the congregation makes all of these decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're baptizing babies, now they're a member of the congregation. And then it doesn't make sense. Like, what, the baby's supposed to be a, in charge of doctrine? That doesn't make sense. So maybe we shouldn't baptize babies. And so that's that's his argument. And I think it's a pretty compelling one. That first you're a congregationalist, then you're a Baptist. And I think our current Baptists, it's sort of the other way around. You're a Baptist and maybe you're a congregationalist. But congregationalism is a essential of Baptist theology. If you're not a congregational church, you're not a Baptist church. You can have Baptist on your name, but you're not. Uh, you're an irregular, well, you're not even an irregular Baptist. You're not a Baptist. And I think a lot of churches who do this don't really pay attention to it or, or aren't really concerned about it because no one else is concerned about it. My friends who are not quite on board here, I'm the only one saying anything to them. <laughs> <laughs> the people in their city are like, whatever, Baptist, non-denominational, it's all the same. Uh, but I think we should be honest with our labels and be as historically accurate. So if you have Baptists on your church, you are identifying with a historical group called Baptists who are congregational. And if you want to be elder ruled, then go non-denominational or Bible church or um, you know Calvary Chapel. But Baptists have always been congregational because that's just the nature of priesthood of all believers individual soul liberty, uh, believer's baptism, like these things mean the congregation is is a group of Bible believe the, the Bible's the authority and the Holy Spirit leads them to live out the scriptures. That's why 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians are all addressed to the church. And Baptists have taken that as the standard. You go back to the 1689 confession, that's what they're talking about. 
So let me urge the listeners, if you call yourself a Baptist, recognize that congregationalism is an essential part of being a Baptist. And if you get rid of congregationalism, you're going to undermine the Baptist theology. And there are many Bible-believing Presbyterian, non-denominational Bible churches, but congregationalism is congregationalism and believer's baptism, that's what makes you a Baptist. If you give up one of those two things, you're not really a Baptist. Uh, those are our two like claim to fame. <laughs> so let me urge you to look at how the Bible commands the members of the church to be a part of the church, which means we need to lead them to do that because it, it's for their own good. And giving people responsibility matures them. And that's why God tells, it, tells us to do it. And it's a lot easier for the leadership to make decisions. It's a lot more effective. It's a lot smoother. But it's just not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what Baptists believe. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can also join our Facebook group. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any, any podcast app of your choice. Subscribe, rate, and review. 